Welcome back to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lundberg from Altus Performance, and this week we are joined by one of our all-time favorites, three-time major winner, Jordan Spieth. When we started this podcast a couple years ago, Jordan was one of the first guys that we asked to come on, and he was very kind to oblige that request as we were figuring out what we were doing, and I encourage you to listen to that one if you haven't, but we're excited to have him on again now that we've got a few reps under our belt, and like any other golf fan, we just like listening to Jordan talk off because he's always thoughtful, always honest. And the idea for this time around was to allow Jordan to serve as a bit of a coach. Despite his young age, Jordan has a lot of wisdom, golf wisdom and golf IQ. And we get so many questions about how Jordan does certain things. So we wanted to give you an opportunity to hear it directly from him. And it went even better than I could have imagined. Jordan provided incredible detail on how he's training certain skills and gives us some insight into his thought process on a few things concerning form and skill development. He also discusses a few of the things that are motivating him for the rest of the season, which is really cool to hear as I don't think that he's really discussed that much elsewhere. We recorded this about a month ago, so right as the season was about to restart, you'll get a chance to hear how he took advantage of the time off and how he's approaching the unique circumstances of the current PGA Tour season. So we'll get right to it. Enjoy episode 71 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Jordan Spieth. Welcome back to round two. This I think you were our like second interview. Yeah. So we've gotten way better at this. Okay. We're, we're really good at Hopefully it. Hopefully so, I have too. Yeah, it'll be it'll be better this time. So I wanted to start with by the time people hear this, you'll have started the season, which is a week away, or the the off season will be over. So I just wanted to talk about a little bit like day in the life for you in this really odd period where all of a sudden you have three months off how have you been able to keep a routine and what has that routine looked like? Even if, if you've even prioritized keeping a routine. I have, I don't post a lot of my stuff daily. I've always been somebody that likes to kind of work in the dark and not necessarily share a lot of what I'm working on, how I'm working on it. And when I do, it's typically I'm hitting five balls from here, five balls from here, five balls from here. This is my practice drill, not specifics on what I'm trying to do with those shots. So I guess to answer your question during quarantine, it's been, I have stayed very much in a routine. I started out approaching it almost a little bit like off season. So I went into about a week into it, you know, I went on a vacation early into it with my family. We didn't know how bad things were going to be, you know, it was early March. So uh, once it started to get bad, we came back and I was home for the next, probably I would say six or seven weeks straight which is very unusual. Yeah. And that's you'll no, you'll that probably too, never do that again, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> while you're a professional, yeah. Rapper. I mean, maybe like a Thanksgiving through December, but we're normally traveling or doing something. There's a wedding somewhere, there's a trip somewhere. So that was to be at home in my own bed for that amount of time was, was great, but it was also, you know, tough because I, I have a hard time sitting still. Yeah. So I approached it as off season in my training. So we started to get busy in, okay. You know, I like where I'm at, but let's try and put some weight on. Not a ton, maintain mobility, try and strengthen some areas based on the first few months of the year where uh, I need to improve in my golf swing. What can I do in the gym that makes that a little bit easier without having to nail a a bunch of golf balls early on because I wanted to kind of take a little bit of a break from the game given we knew that the earliest we'd start was June maybe June 1st, but it ended up being now June, what'll be 11th, I think. So the beginning of quarantine was a lot of training and and hanging at home. I started a routine where I went every morning and went on a bike ride with the dog, would do the same thing at five o'clock at night. And in the meantime, try and throw in some kind of headspace and some meditation stuff to kind of settle down and kind of, I guess, get your mind right during quarantine because you can kind of go nuts. And and then I played a lot of fun rounds. So it wasn't, um, I wasn't working on anything. I went out to the course I grew up at at Brookhaven with just friends that aren't professional golfers or uh, just my friends. And we just played probably two to three times a week where, you know, we'd have a couple beers and play golf. And I never really get to do that. And it was a lot of fun. And I didn't put pressure on how I was playing, didn't really care much. It was just get out, enjoy the game where you grew up loving it and, and learning how to play it. So I actually thought that was going to be, um, not only fun at the time, but also kind of a mind clear, kind of an advantage to, you know, because you can get pretty burnt out in professional golf if you're not careful. 
My next question was that, and you, you answered it a little bit right there, but I'll, I'll give you an opportunity to elaborate a little bit at the beginning of all this, when we knew it was pretty serious and we knew that kind of keeping your sanity during all this was going to be really difficult. And obviously you also had to keep your health and make sure that your family was in good shape. And it was easy to get negative and it's a little bit of a depressing situation. And so we task all of our clients with, Hey, what can you do in the next few weeks to where in a year from now, you look back at this period as being really pivotal in your journey. You know what I mean? To, to try to reframe this the best that we can. And we've had clients that have appreciated that message. And now that we're six or seven weeks into it, I think are looking back or are able to look back at some new habits that they've developed, some priority on self-improvement and self-care that will be, you know, it'll be a pivotal to how they are moving forward. So it sounds like headspace was one of those things, you know, just making sure that your mind's right. And then getting back to, you know, some of the reasons why you love golf. Is there any other activities that whether that's structured through what you and Cam are doing or just and Michael as well, or just anything you did on your own that you feel like will cause that? The last probably four or five weeks as I started to actually, things were opening up here in Texas and I was able to get back to to practicing and playing and getting in a, a typical day routine that an off week would look like. Cameron decided it'd be a good idea f- to hop on the phone, hop on a, a Zoom with Michael and myself once a week and set some goals. Uh, Cameron had a book each week for each of us to read so we could talk about and then um, kind of, they set some kind of health goals for themselves as far as how much training for me, I schedule that. So, so I'm already in that routine and I've created such a habit out of it that it's already there, but it's certainly some other visualization stuff kind of getting, um, getting your mind right. And for me, this quarantine, as sad as it is and the, and the reason for it, you know, like you just mentioned, it, it's an opportunity. And I looked at it very much so as an opportunity, you know, I'd, I hadn't been swinging the club very well or hitting the ball very well for a little while. And I looked at it as, wow, this was almost a time where I could not only take time away from the game to stop kind of nailing in the wrong things and really learn a lot about why I did what I've done so well for a number of years when I kind of just did it, learning why and and how to kind of get things to match back up to positions in the swing and feels more importantly that are similar to what I've had when I've been very successful. And I was given this 10, 11 week break without having to use tournament golf where you have to constantly not only compare yourself um, to yourself, but others are comparing you to yourself at high levels. It's very difficult to be able to work in the darkness like I was able to do for the majority of my life. You're able to go through some struggles, but you don't get so down on yourself because it's part of the game and you move on and there's not that extra pressure that you're comparing to you at your best or somebody else is comparing you to your, your best to where you can really just, like I mentioned earlier, work in darkness. And I was kind of able to do that during quarantine. I look at it as almost uh, a bit of a godsend in just in my kind of sanity with my golf game. And I feel really relaxed and anxious and ready to go. But I also s- still feel I still feel very patient. Uh, I understand that tournament golf, when we start back up, is going to feel a bit odd. It might Things may come back very quickly, and I might be very successful with what we're working on and, and what I'm seeing here in practice. But it also you know, may be a few weeks or, or even a, a month or however long it is. But I, I am very confident in what we're doing, the direction we're moving, more so than I can say in, in quite a while. Well, it sounds like a common theme in these conversations that we have in some form or another reflection always comes up. And it sounds like it's been a few weeks of reflection and taking stock, taking inventory. And now we get to look forward to putting into practice those lessons that we learn. And I, I want to talk to you a little bit about your schedule because it's it's not like most years where you can circle a few weeks on the year, the calendar that are saying, hey, I'm going to prioritize and prep for these in a special way because you're just going to be playing a lot, I assume. So I'm curious if there's any strategy that you have in looking at the calendar and looking at a bunch of majors bunched up in the next 365 days to figure out how you're going to prioritize those or how you'll prep differently than normal. And then I want to talk a little bit about Augusta in November as sure. well. I've always had a, a plan, even from rookie year that we've had is for training leading into major cha- to peak for the majors, right. to peach for the, the majors and the, and the players championship. 
in the buildup, there's normally a higher workload ahead of time. So I'm normally doing more of a strength phase a few weeks out, a speed phase a couple weeks out, and then just mobility the week of the major because they just take a lot out of you, these major champions, especially if you're expecting to be in contention and playing late in the afternoon in the summertime and under that kind of pressure where you're, you know, you're, I mean, you're just, you're burning, you're burning more. It's mental and physically uh, strenuous. So the training side, it's always been, we've always had that plan. And then with Cameron, there's always been the plan, which is, you know, okay, let's work on the things we need to work on about a month to three weeks out. And then when we get a couple weeks out, let's start really trying to be very outwardly focused in our practice, very, you know, shot making. And then when we get to a major championship, we are reactive. It's see shot, hit shot on the practice range. It's all right, hit a low one of that pin. And then five seconds later, turn over and hit a high one of that pin with that club. So you're very reactive and you're not very focused on the swing. That's, that's a place where I always want to be. The majors where I've had the most success, whether I've won them or finished in the top five, I've done a great job of doing that. The combination of the training and the on course, uh, sorry, the, the training in the gym, but also the training of the skills, that kind of peaking. And so now what we're looking at is seven majors in an 11th, 11 month period. And I'm almost with the way the schedule is ahead of time. We don't have one for a while now. So, but it's very important because I have, I still have a significant goal of trying to make the Ryder cup team this year. And for me, that means I've got to really think about approaching picking apart certain tournaments that I'm just going to approach as a major and go through that same kind of preparation ahead of time. And, and a common question that I get is, can't you just do that every week? You know, it doesn't seem like you're doing a whole lot different, but in reality, you go through periods where you need to go work on things more, or it's worth working on strength. So you maintain that strength then that speed phase. And then the mobility phase It's just, you know, if you just do the mobility phase, you, you could lose some of that strength or speed and things don't kind of sync up the way that I'm used to them syncing up those major championship weeks. So I'll look to the PGA clearly, but prior to that, you know, I've got what looks like, oh, six, six to seven events prior to then and maybe an eight or nine week period. And so I'll, I think a lot of it's going to be less is more right. uh, when it comes to the gym once we start up. But uh, as much as I can start to get outwardly focused, I've had a lot of time working on the, the mechanics side of things. As much as I can be outwardly focused and most importantly, starting to trust things when I start back up, trust what we're working on, because it's easy to to revert back to what I was doing uh, when we last left off. So the more I can trust and not worry about results as I kind of settle into playing tournament golf again, I think is going to be the key for me. So you, I know you've played Augusta in different times of year and obviously have had more success than anybody since you came on tour for the last six or seven years. So what can we expect to see for a November uh, Masters? So I've played it in October, November, and December before, and they're normally just re-springing the fairways right. you know, to get ready for the springtime. So it plays really, really long. Uh, it can be obviously very cold which would make it play longer, but the ball doesn't roll in the fairway when they're doing that. Now, clearly that's not going to be the case. They close it all down to get it ready for, I think you could get one of two options. I think you could get a Zach Johnson type masters uh, where guys can't reach the par fives and two. And you've got this, um, this very, very difficult long golf course that plays to, you know, five, six under winning Um, if it's cold and rainy and wet. And the other option is, you get a nice warm fall and it could be running faster than it runs in the spring. And it could be playing, you know, it might be cool in the mornings. It might be kind of, the temperature might be cold, but it might be dry where you get uh, kind of the firmest Augusta that that we could imagine seeing. The year that I lost, a, that I got second when Bubba won in 2014 was the firmest I've seen it. And that Saturday I played with Adam Scott and I remember us both on number four essentially laying up on putts. It was so crusty and fast. And that's a possibility in November for sure. So it could be a crapshoot. I've been asked that question and the answer is it could be any or all, you know, we're just happy. We're going to have a master's this year. Yeah. How about two and six months? Exactly. Right. I want to shift gears a little bit. And I told you when we wanted to do this again, one of the reasons is we get so many questions and I get a lot of questions personally 
how does Jordan do this? How does he chip? What does his putting routine look like? All these questions. And my answer, while I'm still privy to a lot of that, are usually just kind of conjecture and speculation. So we're going to take the middleman out. You're going to become kind of put your coaching hat on here. And I want to give you an opportunity to answer some of those. I know you've always wanted to be a coach at Alta. So here, here's your opportunity right here. So short game shots. This is one of the things that I get asked a lot is you have a robust set of short game tools. You've got a lot of different weapons that you can adapt to a lot of different environments and conditions. And the question that I kind of get is, what were Cameron and Jordan doing at 12 years old that were foundational to building that kind of robust set of weapons, that adaptability? So then the the action point is what can I be doing to make sure as I'm a developing golfer that I have that same kind of diversity in my short game? I'd start out by saying the chipping green I grew up practicing on at Brookhaven was an AstroTurf green that was about the size of this room. And it was so firm and there was one little bunker and then a little bit of rough around it. This is before everything was redone at Brookhaven and we had yellow range balls. So I would actually take my golf balls over and use them and retrieve them. There's a net behind the screen that prevented you from hitting it onto the 18th green of the master's golf course. It forced me to learn how to spin the ball around the greens. It had to have a lot of spin on it in order to stay on this turf green, especially when you're talking about these bunker shots. So I learned how to hit really close to the ball on bunker shots at a very, very young age, even prior to first seeing Cameron. And that that's probably the number one most important thing, short game shot that I learned at a young age that's beneficial on the PGA Tour because, you know, even through junior amateur and college golf, you normally are given more room than some of the shots that you get on the PGA Tour as far as how close pins are to the side and how you get them closer. So I had to learn how to spin it. And I had to learn how to put significant loft on it from short range on whether it was a fairway shot or a a rough shot. So flop shots, essentially. And when you learn those, the rest of them are uh, become a little bit easier. You know what I'm saying? So when I first went to Cameron, I, I was opened up to the great chipping facilities at Brook Hollow. And so there were a lot of shots that I hadn't really been able to practice where I was that he could teach me there. Longer bunker shots uh, while still hitting just as close to the ball, using different clubs. And then a lot of kind of the fairway, three different trajectory shots from, you know, 20, 30, 40 yards that make, depending on where pin locations are and what's presented in front of you, if you have to carry something or if you don't make that shot a higher percentage shot to hit close. So what you see a lot of guys do is is the same as their swing motion on a lot like they're sure. thinking about a swing motion on chips and the majority of the time I'm hitting a chip shot I've not thinking whatsoever about what my actual golf swing feels like there's just so many different ways like almost every single shot that I'm hitting on or around the greens actually I can say every single shot that I hit on or around the greens is a cut shot I never hit a draw it's always a cut, whether it's a flop or whether it's even a bump and run, that's pretty straight face. But even little cut spinning bump and runs, I can control better because I'm getting down into the ball. And I talked to Phil Mickelson about this. Actually, Phil brought it up to me. He came up to me one time, we were playing a Tuesday round somewhere. And he said, you're one of the only people that I see, like myself, this is what Phil talking, that really tries to cover the golf ball. And I said, Phil, I really like the way you said that. I I haven't really put into words because I always say kind of, you know, feel like you're driving it into the ground. Don't be afraid to take a divot even from short range. Like you're not, I never chip a ball. I'm always driving it. You know, the, the hands are forward, the weight's forward on almost every shot and it's all a cut motion. It's just where is that handle and where's the starting club face and where's that release pattern that gets the height and the spin. So when he mentioned it as covering the ball, I thought that was a really good way for me to explain how I chip off your typical fairway lies into the grain lies. The other big thing that I would advise to somebody that's starting out is try and find Bermuda grass. If you can chip into the grain Bermuda and you practice that, then you can chip off anything. Well, and requisite to what you said there before about your cut shot is that's not an option to someone that doesn't have that landing spot precision that you developed off the AstroTurf. It'll scare people because you'll think you can hit that little bladed one exactly, or you'll give up on it and hit the ground first, but more, most likely you'll get the bladed, you'll get the bladed one trying to cover it and come over the top of it. But in reality, your weight's forward and you're creating a significant amount of, um, not yeah width yeah when your weight's forward you can create that kind of width to feel that shallower angle coming in so you don't feel that you have to do so much at impact you know if your weight's forward and the handle's forward 
when you're creating width, you've already got everything set up in front of the ball, which is where you want it. And you can, your landing spots almost set up in are front you, of the ball. Are you conscious or thinking about kind of maintaining a pretty constant radius? It really depends on the shot that I'm hitting. But yes, I typically, when I take my stance, I'm thinking about where that radius is. And obviously the more difficult shots have a pretty shallow radius to try and create the spin and the height in order to get a ball to, to stop quickly, which it makes it a much harder shot. And those aren't required that often, but I say that you've got a lot of different weapons to where I feel like in having observed you and watch you in tournament play, I feel like when you get up to a, a situation around the green, you've got options. Do you feel that you have more options than even your peers in the PGA tour? Do you feel like you've got a couple shots that maybe most don't, and maybe it's just that cut spinner that not a lot of yeah, guys are playing. I, I do. I feel that I feel that's the case versus a, a lot of guys. There, there are certainly a number of guys who I feel have all the weapons around the greens as well. I feel like I have a great gauge of judging lies, and that's part of it. That's like reading a putt. I mean, that's if you don't read it correctly, it's not going to go in. If you don't judge that lie correctly, it's not going to go close to the hole. But again, a lot of it goes back to growing up on Bermuda and practicing on Bermuda. The rest of it is easy. The other grass types, when you go to it, they're much simpler. And I was lucky to grow up having to hit grainy Bermuda chip shots where you just learn to find that bottom. So much more precision with the bottom. There are guys, there are a number of guys, there are PGA Tour players that I've watched go from living in California, moving to Texas for college and really, really struggle chipping for a, for a number of years until they started to figure it out. And then it becomes a confidence issue too. Then you've got to overcome that obstacle as well. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then you start thinking about the motion a lot and you just don't want to have to do that uh, when you're chipping or hitting pitch shots. Here at Altus, we are proud partners of Titleist and we want to quickly tell you about our favorite irons. Cam and I, along with many of our clients at Altus, are gaming the Titleist T-Series, the engineering ingenuity that has made Titleist the long-standing number one iron on the PGA Tour, delivers three strikingly new iron designs as part of the Titleist T-Series. Powered by breakthrough technology, including max impact for maximum speed and distance control across the face, the new T-Series T100, T200, and T300 models offer a combination of power, performance, playability, and feel, unlike anything Titleist has ever designed. Visit Titleist.com to learn more about the T-Series irons today. So I want to ask you very similarly along those lines of lag putting is probably the most frequent question I get is how did you develop that? What were the things that you were doing to develop this skill that you have for touch and speed control that is you know, otherworldly better than even your, your peers on the PGA tour. So what were you like, as far as first developmental stuff that you were doing at a younger age to develop that? I think, uh, and, and maybe unfortunately for what you're asking, I would say a lot of it came naturally yeah, to me. Yeah, unfortunate. I hate that. <laughs> yeah. A lot of it came naturally to me, but we have done a number of, I've used Cameron's drills for lag putting religiously when a lot of people like to hit more balls right. or they get done hitting their, you know, inside of 10 feet or 10 to 10 feet range uh, of putts and don't move on to take that time to do the boring ladder drill. And I've just, I love doing it. You know, I just, it, I find it fun. And so I find myself doing it. Yeah. So th I was going to, my follow up to that was what is the, you're going to go spend time dedicated to putting practice. Can you walk us through what that looks like as far as you don't have to go through like specifics on the task, but just what does the mix look like from how are you prioritizing lag putting versus, you know, five to 15 footers. And then even how are you developing green reading and, and those touch skills that kind of marry all that together? So my typical on a, on a day today is a good example on a full where I have enough time to get through everything I want to get through putting. I go over and I hit what's probably around an average of 20 putts from that are straight on either a, the Dave Pell's putting tutor. I use the putting rail, something that is start line feedback related. It has a alignment tool, that, you know, so whether the whole, the putting rail has the little lines behind it where I know my putter square when I start the putting tutor, you put it up to the edge of it and it lines it up. So one, you know that you're square, so you can kind of get your eyes calibrated to where that putter is that's lined up at the center of the hole. Okay. Got it. And then not caring much about the entire path of the stroke, the matchup, whatever start line. If I'm starting it online, the first six inches, it's going to be started. It's going to be starting online. My stroke's not going to hook or cut enough to where I present any problems after that. So I start out 
from probably anywhere from six to eight feet on a straight putt with one of those two devices. And I hit, I say 20, sometimes it's 12 and I'm like, man, things feel great. I can move off. And sometimes it's 50 or even a hundred. If I feel like I need to work on something in the stroke, great uncertainty of certain. I'm trying to check the box to move on, to be outward. I don't want to be okay. Alignment got to start it right online. Okay. So then I do my four through nine foot drills, uh, four different north, south, east, and west around the hole, trying to get your uphill right to left, uphill left, right. From I mark mark with a Sharpie four to nine feet, and I've got to go four through six feet. I have you know the amount I need to make out of those 12, and then seven through nine, I've got the amount I need to make to move on. I then go 10 feet around with 10 putts, and I've got to do four under or better. So if it's more than a Two feet past, it's a bogey. If I leave it short, it's a bogey. If you make it, it's a birdie. So I've got to make, I've got to be at 40 to 50% from 10 feet. Now, this is the same hole I've been putting on. So clearly that percentage is way higher than tour average and unrealistic on tour from 10 feet in the course of a year. But I've been putting on the same hole the whole time. So I know the break already and the speed. So now I've just got to go and hit those lines. Then I go into the gate drill. So I use two ball markers, a putter's head width apart at a midpoint of the putt, anywhere from 10 to 25 feet. That's where I really get the speed field dialed in. And so I'm finding the midpoint, which is not only training how I'm reading the greens, but now it's, is this the speed that's necessary to hit it to the front of the hole and not go more than two feet by? And you've got five balls and you get one point hitting it through the gates. You get one for the correct speed and you get another one. If you make it, you got to get at least 10 points to clear. And you can on it, you know, most of the time when I hit my first putt, I adjust something slightly, right? Cause something was, I even, a lot of times I'll miss the gate and make the putt because once I put the gate down, that's just me saying, okay, that's what I think it needs to be. But when I get over the putt, I'm not trying to hit it through the gate. I'm trying to make the putt. So if it matches up, then I know, all right, I'm fully calibrated on the read speed and line. That's awesome. Sometimes I've got to move the balls over to where it will end up going through the gate anyway. And then the last thing I do is the ladder drill. If we're given the opportunity to, we have the space and and the time and you start from, I mean, we've started from nine or 10 feet. If we don't have a ton of space or we start at 15 and we've gone, I remember at Chambers Bay on that practice screen, maybe the Sunday or Monday of that week uh, before the tournament started, we went out to like 58 feet and you have to get it past the ball that you just hit. You know, you start at 15 feet, you got to hit it past the 15 foot mark and no more than a foot past that mark. And then your next mark is that is the ball that you just hit. And if you leave it short, you have to start back over. I went at that, that week, I went to 58 feet. Now, when we got to 30 feet, I was given, I think two feet of room or, and then when I got to like 50 feet, I was given three feet of room. Clearly when you're 50 feet, you're hitting it within three feet of the right speed. That's a great putt. That's about as dialed in as I remember ever being. Well, and I think most important to the people listening, not, not only is it really nice to get a behind the scenes look at the specific tasks you're doing, but I know that you've been doing those tasks for a really long time. Like there's not this desire for novelty are changing things up a lot, but that putting routine has looked the same for the most part for many years. Right. And there's been consistency in, in how you've attacked continuing to maintain and develop your putting. Skills. The only thing that I've changed out of that entire routine over the years is what I use for the first 20 putts. Like I went through a phase where the, I didn't really, the putting tutor, I didn't really like it. It wasn't, I didn't like that it was a little bit up in the air. So then I just use an alignment stick at the right edge of the hole spaced out half a putter length from it. So whatever, it still had my alignment feedback. So I could just get the putter parallel, sorry, technically perpendicular with the head of the putter to that alignment stick. And then the greens that we're putting on on tour are so pure, you know, if you're, if it's going in the middle of the hole, you're starting it online. You can also put two coins out six inches in front of the ball, like a putting tutor would be anyway. So the devices I've used for the straight putts to start has, have changed, but all in all trying to accomplish the same goal. I want to go back to the 20 footer where you're working on your breaking putts a little bit. How does that transfer to the golf course? Like we talk a lot about kind of different targeting strategies. Some people see an aim point that's even with the hole. Some people see curves. Some people say, see a straight line. And then you, you mentioned earlier about some visualization that you were doing as you're over a putt. Is there, does that three point game transfer to the golf course to where you're seeing curve in a similar way? It's exactly the reason for it. Yeah. So I'll look for blemishes on the green. I'll look for a pitch mark or 
uh, you know, if it's bent grass, some of the bent grass is lighter colored than others. So I'll look for, you know, a lighter or a darker patch to run through it. Ideally for me, I try and find a point that I can go around. So I want to be on the high side of where I'm putting it. And it, and it makes, it makes my, um, my vision instead of going to where the hole is to go to where that midpoint is so that I'm, you know, you just the majority of putts you see miss, you see miss low. And a lot of that is because you don't want to play it as high as, as necessary because you see the hole uncomfortably left or uncomfortably right. So for me, it's uh, that drill establishes that for me. I, I'm trusting that line. I have a similar putt on the golf course. I've already hit a putt that breaks a similar amount you know, on the practice screen. So I know that it can do that on this golf course at this speed. It's just hard because a lot of times at home, greens aren't the same speeds as they are on tour. So they're not going to break as much. And so to hit them that high, a lot of times is difficult to adjust to. But when you've already done it on those practice greens, it's, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah. And it's how I read putts. If you, nowadays, if you look on TV, you'll see the, essentially the, the shot tracer for the putt they'll also put the point even with the hole out to the side. That's not how I, I don't read with the point out to the side. I see that whole track and find where that midpoint is for the, the speed that I like to hit the putts at, which is essentially close to die speed. And I'm seeing that midpoint and I'm finding out, okay, it's gonna break a little bit before that, so I'm a little bit higher than that point is, is I'm reacting to putting it through that midpoint. I want to move on to full swing skills. And I know in the past year, you know, it's really sparked some deeper investigation of your full swing form. And, you know, whether that be through you and Cam looking at some old game footage, game film, or just identifying some areas of improvement, I'd love to get your take on how important it is to just own your swing. Because now in talking to you, asking you questions about your form, the impression that I get is that you've got a really deep understanding for what makes your swing work and the things that you need to be monitoring and how to monitor those things. So as someone listening, I think the message that I want to get it, get across, and I think no better person than you to deliver that is just how important it is to understand and own your golf swing and what it takes to kind of develop that. As much as I get a lot of detail into how I play a golf hole and as much pride as I take in preparation for playing a golf course and even into short game shots and stuff. I've always been pretty naive when it comes to golf swings. Like if somebody talked to me about really anything with the golf swing, I'd be like, I don't, okay. I don't know what that means. You know, like wrist flexion versus, you know, I just, I don't know what any of that means. And I just kind of almost needed to get a little bit of what you want to swing your own swing. Well, what's my swing? You know, what's, how do I own my swing? Cause, and, and the first question is what is my swing, right? Like what do I do really well for me that makes me feel comfortable, confident to now deliver the downswing into what ball flight I want. And so that's been kind of the, that's been the dive, you know, as much as you want to be reactive to the shot, you also want to, I've never played a round of golf with no swing thoughts. So the least amount I can think of was in the middle of 2016, all I thought about was holding my right hip steady and loading my upper body back in the backswing. Around, I won Colonial around that time and I, I played some decent golf around that time. I remember having one swing feel there and it had nothing to do with any of the shaft pitch, takeaway, club face angle, anything. It was strictly just load and I didn't like that. When I've played my best and struck it my best, there's always been a, I think of it almost like an entire motion. Like uh, um, if you had to draw, like like the 3D capture would show going back and through, but for almost from a down the line view, okay, am I taking it deeper and then coming over it? Or am I taking it steeper and coming under it? Like an entire motion of it that allows me to feel like I hit certain points in the swing, comfort points almost. Yeah. So... And the, my best ball striking year in 2017, where I ranked first or second in tee to green on, on the PGA Tour, I played most of that year with a very similar swing thought the entire time, which was I hit a set point at really P2, so you know early into the backswing, where I was turned early, and I was trying to roll the face open a little bit at the time. I was, was pretty close starting that season out. And then I was trying to continue to maintain a significant amount of depth into my backswing while standing the shaft up. 
I could feel almost hinge up so that it didn't get too flat. And there was so much comfort in that motion because it was just getting me nice and around with my upper body, kept my swing nice and in front of me, which is one of the strengths that I have when I've played really well is that this I'd swing from very much in front of me, meaning I don't let that right elbow get too far behind me and back to where I feel stuck. That's the kind of the problem I've been into uh, lately, but I felt so good at, at hit. I was so good at hitting those two points in the backswing that once I got to the top, it was okay. What ball flight do you want? I mean, I could, I could stand up at that period of time and I would say historically, I'd say a three wood off the tee or a three, just a three wood in general is probably the hardest club for anybody to hit off the ground. I mean, I could sit there and, and literally tell Michael, I'm going to move it from that lamp to that, you know, hanger from 270 yards, just like that. I mean, if I had three wood off the tee, I could cut it two feet. I could, I had, you know, we call it the hammer draw. If I really needed to kind of high toe missile one, I could literally on purpose high toe missile a three wood that was a draw pattern that we did when there was no run out and you just wanted to hit three wood because it was a, you know, it was a narrower hole or whatever. Anyway, so when I think about that time, it was those set positions really just allowed that timing element to take place. And that's really when, with professional golf, you know, if you don't get really, really off, most of the difference maker is just a timing element where the guys who are just are in control, almost slowing down the golf swing, hitting their points and slowing it down, feeling um, almost slow motion at impact where they can make minor adjustments if necessary. That Those are the guys who are missing the least and are very much on and who are who are taking advantage and, and consistently striking the ball well. Yeah, and that, that echoes some of what Adam Scott told us really recently. Like he was like, I just want a rhythm thought. Uh, there's a few positional things that I'm trying to hit, and he, I'm trying to take my backswing like I'm in B Park, like I'm in slow motion is a really similar kind of feel. Yeah. And, and another common element, because I always ask the swing thought question because I'm fascinated by it because we get a, a pretty wide range of answers. Like Webb is like, I don't have swing thoughts. And I, I think my takeaway as a coach is that they're best. They're necessary. It's, you're not going to play very much of your golf where you're just blank as you indicated, but they're probably best when they're consolidated and there's more of a feel rather than hitting like your, your thoughts on hitting these, these specific positions. Yeah, and you, you can be in flow. I mean, you can be in the zone, you can be in total, you can be in total flow state while still having a swing thought or two. It's just, it, it, it's just in a slow motion. Like Adam, it's, it's just in a, it feels slow motion to you, so it's that much easier to control. And I'm not saying slow tempo. Right. It just feel you can feel every part of the swing. So you just know, for me, it's always been, I don't want to think about the downswing other than ball flight at all. I want everything set up in the backswing to where it feels like there's almost a pause, almost a Hideki-like pause where, okay, things are right where it needs to be, hit what I want to hit. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that, that flow state can happen like... People think when you're kind of blacking out on a golf course going low that you're just kind of just swinging and you're seeing a target and just hitting it. I mean, that's... Three percent of your rounds ever? Maybe. Yeah, right. Well, three percent of my rounds ever are in that kind of flow state, but none of those rounds were still not thinking about anything. I mean, you're very target focused, but you're still hitting those points in the swing. Sure. I, I want to move to practice skills a little bit and you can provide a little bit of color of, of how this has evolved over time. But as a starting point, what do you see as ideal from range time to golf course time? And I'm sure you're more golf course time now than, than what you would have been when you were developing. Actually the opposite. And I think mainly because of the amount of time that I have now versus, you know, getting out of school at three fifteen, and you just got to go play nine and mm -hmm. I've always been very, very much play and on course, you know, focused uh, as far as improving my game. Only through, I would say, professional golf have I gone to the dr driving range, you know, probably more so than I should. And that's been the consensus when we ask that question to others as, as PGA Tour players is that they're just playing a lot. They're on the golf course. And I think maybe another reason why that is is because it also introduces the pressure aspect of it too, especially if you've got a game. And I, I was reading what, or I listened to one of the posts that PGA Tour had colonial highlights and you in a press conference after winning talking about the chip behind 17 
where you chipped in and you said there's not a whole lot that you can do to prepare yourself for how your hands feel, how the club face feels, where you've got to hit this touchy shot down the stretch of a tournament to try to win. So is that part of why golf course time is so important? Because you need to find yourself in those situations to where you've got any idea of how to handle that stress. Yeah. And I mean, you're guaranteed 18 shots that day that are similar to the range. That's it. It's every tee shot. It's the par threes. Those are the only four iron shots you get that are like that. And you might only have three or four of them that are the same direction as the range anyway. So, if you know, the wind's blowing, you know, the shot that you're playing. It's why Augusta is, you see field players when Augusta. You have those 18 swings. And other than that, every single other shot is presented with a significant slope you're hitting off of that requires a certain ball flight to hold a certain area of the screen that makes it a way higher percentage than the other shot. Mostly field players win at Augusta. Obviously, you can be way on and win, but you don't see a lot of range rats win that golf tournament. It's just the way that it's just the way it goes. I think that on course is where I learned early on that if I wanted to be able to win anywhere in the world on any kind of surface, you have to be able to work the ball both directions and do it in a consistent manner. So, so fades, draws, for the rest of your season, what would be the percentage of each if you had to Close guess? to 50-50 would really? be my guess. Yeah. And, and ideally not that. a lot of movement on either one. Yeah, sure. We wanted to quickly interrupt the interview just to dig into a concept that Jordan's discussing there and his ability to move it both ways. Uh, and that type of precision and variety in ball flights obviously comes with lots of talent and ability, but it's also cultivated through really intelligent practice. And we want to share one of the track man tasks that Cameron and Jordan do a lot to help maintain that kind of ball control. And it's called hard array to complete the drill. You'll choose a mid iron on the range. Your goal is to create three different trajectories with three different shapes. So low fade, medium fade, high fade, along with low draw, medium draw, and a high draw. And you're successful doing this you'll see an overlay of the shot traces on TrackMan, and it ends up looking like a heart with all the curve lines going out and then meeting back in the center, uh, hence the name Heart Array. And your objective is to hit all six of the ball flights that complete the Heart Array in as few shots as possible. To demonstrate ultimate ball control and precision, as Jordan does, he'll call it a success when he's six for six with all those shots, finishing within 15 feet of the target line. And this obviously demonstrates that iron play is predictable, it's precise, and he's ready for tournament play. And you can also use the TrackMan data to modify the difficulty level. Maybe start with just two shot shapes, a medium draw and a medium fade, and you can widen out that error tolerance to, say, 30 feet from the target line. And if you need a better visual for this drill, the hard array, you can search Jordan Spieth hard array on YouTube. And there's a really cool video that Cam produced for Golf Digest a few years back that will be helpful. But we really like this drill for a few reasons. While we want you to dedicate the appropriate amount of time to developing your stock shot, your go-to, the one that you'll lean on probably far more than the 50-50 mix that Jordan just described. But when you devote some range time to this kind of variety in shot shapes that's required by Hard Array, it requires some really helpful exploration and variety. You've got to use different different ball positions, different body alignments, and you're getting really good track man feedback on face and path that helps grow your awareness, which will really serve you well when you encounter a situation on the golf course that requires something other than your stock pattern. And you'll be more confident that you can pull it off when you prepare this way. But maybe more than anything, we like this drill because it helps you correct course. If you ever start to overdo your stock pattern, if all you ever do is hit draws, there will be a time when that nice little draw turns into big hooks and blocks. It's, it's inevitable. But if you've done the hard array, you can access this understanding of what the opposite feels like. You've got reference points for the entire spectrum of face-to-path relationships provided by that really good TrackMan feedback that will make it much easier to apply the necessary amount of solution. It's a lot easier to find the path that is just right for your draw when you've spent the necessary time exploring those extreme poles of the spectrum. It's much easier to find that happy medium when you know what both extremes look and feel like. So we highly recommend that you do some hard array with the help of TrackMan feedback as often as you can. Uh, give it a go with your next TrackMan session. But now back to Jordan.
I want to talk about now just the mental skills that are so important to competitive golf now. Um, and we talk a lot about best performing self when you're at your best and performing really, really well. And you obviously have a massive library of occasions to refer back to, and I'm sure you've done plenty of reflection on those things, but what do you look like? What would an outside observer, what do you feel? What is the self-talk? What are the interactions with Michael? Like we, we try to have our clients define that really well so that then the next question is, how do you prime yourself to get into that state? Is that something that you're actively trying to do either the week of a tournament or even the day before a round goes? I think that the number one thing, number one difference of when I'm at my best and when I'm struggling is the amount of sarcastic cockiness in practice rounds. And just in practice, when I'm around Michael, we love to just make wagers. Like I'll bet you I can give me 10 to one. I can hit this five iron off that pin, you know, that's a hundred yards out and punch it. How much to chip this in, you know, and we'll do it on the golf course in tournament play too. But even before it's the confidence, it's the cockiness that Michael will relay to me that he notices when things are going well versus when they're not. And I notice on course in tournament play, it's the excuse making. It's the um, accepting of bad shots versus not accepting of bad shots and trying to put blame elsewhere and blame elsewhere still could be on me, but on my swing is not where I want it to be versus that was just a bad swing. I'll just make a better swing next time. My, instead of my swing's not where I want it to be. That, that was, I haven't hit a good shot today, when in reality, like how many great shots do you hit in a day? Like exactly how you want to. And it felt exactly how you want to. I mean, even professionals at the highest level that won golf tournaments that week could probably name, you know, 10 shots where they were like, that was exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. And that's it. The rest of them were really, really, really close though. And so it's just, it's, it's being overdramatic versus uh, having a, a level of confidence and cockiness that in my way, it, 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 it becomes almost a little bit sarcastic, but it's still walking taller, um, standing on the tee and being like, I know at my best that I've been at my best and you've been at your best. I beat you. I've been at my best. You've been at your best. I've, you know, you've beaten me before, but I've beaten you. Yeah. I know if my skills are there, I think that there's nobody here that has a chance kind of thing. And then I've stood on tees and been like, I'm in the last group on Saturday right now and I don't have a clue where the ball is going. And I found myself there because I made every putt and I hold out a wedge that I thought was going to go, you know, into this bunker and it got this kick and hold out. Like I have examples of that. Like I've been on both sides where I'm teeing off on Saturday and the fake it till you make it mentality can apply to some extent, but if you know that position wise and, and you like, I got where I was felt really, really late into my swing and I was just having to control it impact. And it's like the deeper you go into a tournament, the more pressure you feel it's already a timing based mechanism. And it's just a matter of time. Now I'm going to step into every single shot, pick my target and try and hit my shot. But when it gets off, I can't be that upset because I know that it doesn't feel great. And it's not that, you know, so it's, it's this balance of, of that kind of, you know, in an ideal world, I get to where I'm that confident cockiness. If I hit a bad shot, I'm like, oh, all right, that wasn't a great swing. You know, almost laugh it off. Yeah. I think like what I'm hearing from that is it's so easy that we overweight any kind of negative and we come up with the emotion and the narratives that come along with a bad shot or, an, or a bad hole or whatever. And the, the hard thing to do is that, as you said, fake it to the make it till you make it not necessarily try to turn that into a positive, but just be neutral about that and have a neutral response in those times. And you can't do that unless you have strategies and unless you discuss that ahead of time as being something that's a priority. I'm sure that I'm curious to know if, if that's something that you guys will prime beforehand. So that's a lot of what we've been talking about on these zoom calls is kind of building a plan as to, you know, let's reflect on when things have been great and when they haven't, and let's, let's step into this in the right frame of mind because I just was on such a, I've been on such a grind. I've probably put more hours in in the last two years than any two year span in my life when maybe I shouldn't have. And it wears you out mentally then the next day when you just hit 500 balls a day before because you didn't like your round and you went and you hit three more buckets after when you hit too many before. Right. You know, some of my best rounds have been when I accidentally slept in and I show up, you know, 15 minutes before and I just gotta go, you know, I get loose and I gotta go. So I've played a lot of golf with Tiger and what's really struck me, the number one thing that struck me out of every round that we've played together is that 
he'll get mad, but he won't get negative. I've never heard him get negative. And I'm trying to take that into my game where I've been less mad and more negative. And he'll hit a shot and, and he'll, he'll let himself know about it. But it's, it's mad. It's not, I can't figure this out. I can't, you know, there's no can't. It's, or I'm struggling with this. I'm, it's literally just him to himself, gets the anger out and then moves on. I've never once heard him be negative. Yeah. Well, it's like we hear in sports psychology, like positive, you got to be really, really positive. Anger is a bad thing. If you watch last dance and you watch 10 episodes of Michael Jordan getting pissed off plenty of times, yeah. it's a pretty good validation for the fact that some of that emotion can be helpful at times. As long as, like you said, I think that's, and I don't know that I've thought of it that way, but that is the differentiation. It's, it's not that you can't get mad. It's that if it's negative and, and I guess maybe pointed inward, then it's not as productive. Right. And honestly, positivity, like if Michael's trying to be super positive when things clearly aren't good, you know, and and it's delusional, right? it's not going to let any, no one's going to be excited about someone saying it's all good. Things are okay. Like, I mean, that's like going up to your wife and saying, chill, you know, when things are good, you know, like, does that go well? No, (laughs) exactly. But you know, positivity, you know, in these kind of situations we're talking about in intense situations, or even when things aren't going well, you want to end up there. But the reaction, I, I don't find very productive. You just don't want to say dumb stuff. Like you don't want to say stuff that you don't mean. And that is counterproductive and anger. And like a quick lashing out is okay. Is my perception of it. Like even when I've played flawless golf, I've been like, dang it, you know, at a, at a shot and upset at the shot that I hit walking up, like you're really going to short side yourself. Like, you know, that wasn't, there was no point in short siding it, right? Like that was bad swing. But then it's not the lingering on negativity, the lingering on dumb stuff. Like I just I haven't been able to figure out this move in the story. Like, cause then all of a sudden, by the time you hit your next full shot, you had, you've now told yourself you haven't been able to figure out the move, you know, versus things are fine. I made a really, really bad mistake and I'm mad at it. And it affected me. It affected my ability to, to score as well as I could on that hole. I've also at the same time can confidently say that as much negativity or frustration I've gone inward with very, very, very rarely has it actually ever affected the next shot. Now it may seem it because I may, it may linger with me for two, three holes when it shouldn't, but I still am standing up to that next shot and I'm proud of that fact, but it may seem like it's, so it's tough for like Michael to read that. Right. But ultimately it's still not going to help me in the long run. Yeah. Well, and I think that maybe unpacking even further is that there's an optimism behind some of it to where that shot just sucked. I didn't like that shot, but the past doesn't predict the future. And I know that I've got what it takes to continue on where the negativity is like, well, this is going to keep happening. Right. Well, and even you could even go further into what you're saying and, and, and look at like the way Phil Mickelson would approach it. He hits a shot and he'll, he'll be like, ah, oh, you know, throw his hands up or whatever. But by the time he gets up to the next shot, a lot of times he looks at it as, wow, I get a chance to show yeah, off. Watch right this. Here. Yeah, exactly. You know, cause I've either, I've either hit it to where I have to hit some amazing shot from the trees or I've now left myself with the hardest short game shot that only I can pull off. Watch this, yeah, you know? And so, it, yeah, I mean, it's a reframing, right? And, and I, I think that that builds into the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about, which was just the winning. We talked about Tiger, Phil, MJ. And when I'm watching, there's a skill to winning that I think that we maybe underestimate that that's something that has to be developed over time. And when I think about, you mentioned, the big shots, some big shots that you've hit, you've got these knack for these big shots and big moments, holding out from the bunker at travelers and John Deere, the big putts at Burkdale and chambers Bay. And I mean, there's Valspar in the playoff. There's a million of those occasions. And I'm afraid that you're going to respond with there's the, the it factor. And I know you, you may not be able to say that about yourself, but I think that that might be the case. I'm curious if there are things that you think that processes to develop or mindsets or skills to develop that you think can aid in someone that's listening right now that maybe doesn't have the knack for those big shots and big moments. And, and it may be something that comes natural to, to some more than others. I mean, that's why you're who you are and you've won what you have. And maybe that is the answer. I'm hopeful that there's something that we can draw out that someone can take action on to, to help in those moments. Yeah. I think a lot of times when people get nervous, their first, their brain goes right to 
avoiding bad. I think like original, like right away, if you're super nervous, you're like, all right, I'm going to do this because it won't do that. For me, it's always been, I should always feel like I have house money where I'm looking at it like the putt at Valspar was going four feet by. Well, I don't think a lot of people would hit the putt that would go four feet by, but I'd be like, well, so what if it goes four feet by? Like I'm literally just looking at the hole and I'm just trying to make the putt. Yeah, there's not a loss aversion. And, yeah. and there's no difference from if I hit that putt. In my mind, there's no difference from if I hit that putt on Thursday and it was my third hole versus that that hole. I have the same goal. I'm trying to get it in the hole as fast as I can. Yeah. Not literally speed-wise like that one, but in the least amount of strokes as possible. And so every one of those times that you're talking about, I, I was legitimately just saying, okay, well, if I get it in the hole right now, that's a lot better than if it took another stroke. I mean, like, for real, the pressure's on. You just got to maintain what got you there. I mean, you're, you're in that. When, the, when you're under pressure, most of the time you're under pressure, it's a really good thing. You've done a lot of really good to get to that position. Don't try and change anything up. I mean, in any way that you're thinking. I mean, in an ideal world, as boring as it seems, I think in an ideal world, probably taking this too far... I would win a golf tournament and not know that I won a golf tournament. You'd get done and you you were so focused on just the shot at hand and what you were trying to do and playing it the same way you played every other one of the 71 holes that you got done and then Michael came up and told me that I won the golf tournament. Like that would be an overdone situation of like I still love I've obviously taken part in a lot of the drama. I've been on both sides of drama. But the reason is, is because I put myself in the position, you know, I've been in the arena a lot of times I've had in the biggest tournaments, had a lot of chances in a limited amount of time that you get presented with that. You know, I mean, you're, you're going to fail. You're going to succeed. You're there. I mean, a lot of things are compared to an immortal Tiger Woods who continue to succeed every time, but that's not necessarily reality. But I just, I mean, at this point I found it most successful if you can, I try not to scoreboard watch anymore. I never really have been a scoreboard watcher. I'm not looking at the scoreboard and being like, oh, he's at seven. Oh, I'm just going to, yeah. I'm going to step on the gas here because I legitimately am trying to birdie every hole anyways. Right. So what difference does it make? Like I'm not, I go for everything and I'm not playing safe anywhere anyways. You know, I, the only time I'm playing safe is if it legitimately percentage wise makes a significant difference. Like I'm at 15 of Augusta and I'm clearly blocked out by the trees. I have a small opening, but if I hit this little punch and I have a wedge in up best, I'm going to make hitting it through that tree. Anyways, if it works out, it's probably birdie. And I have confidence I can make a birdie with a wedge. That's not really laying up. I'm still going to attack or play to the highest percentage to make birdie on every hole. Well, you've been a good coach here, and I'm gonna. Last question I'm gonna have for you is I want to give you an opportunity to coach up some golf parents because we have a lot of those listening. And when I was, I didn't feel like I needed to do a whole lot of prep for this conversation, but I did do a little bit. And I read a quote that I had never read before from Jack Nicholas, and it was after the 16 Masters, and he said, "While Jordan has and will learn from what happened, I would put the emphasis off of what he learned and instead of what he taught us that day, character." And then later in the article, there's words like gratitude and discipline and vulnerability, humility and courage that were mentioned to describe you. And having talked to your parents, I know that they would be far more proud of that praise than anything else that you've done on the golf course. And I think it speaks to why so many people cheer so hard for you as well. And so I want to give you a chance to pay tribute to Chris and Sean a little bit, but then simultaneously help out other parents that if you can discuss the importance that was placed on building those character skills and then their relative importance to the golf skills that you had. And one of my, one of our favorite episodes is, is that we had with Sean where he spoke a little bit to this, but I, I'd love to hear you discuss this so that we can help the sporting parent a little bit. Yeah, I certainly very blessed. I grew up in a, in a household where competitiveness was pushed but not overboard and obviously always playing the game the right way to have fun. You're ultimately playing. If you're not having fun, you shouldn't be doing it. And there are bigger things than sport. So you need to treat people the right way. I watched my parents. They treat people the right way. They treat people with total equality, no matter who you are, where you're from, whatever. And I was fortunate with that. And also 
the environment that I was placed into growing up, uh, I was fortunate that that was taught there too. The friends that I had did the same thing. I'm sure we had a a lot of fun, uh, but there was nothing that was ever, it it was just kind of the, the Jesuit way. I mean, that's just kind of what I learned. So I didn't really know much different and shouldn't know much different because that's, I think, the way to live. So for me, it's, if I'm contending in a tournament, I'm always always under the impression, like, <laughs> perfect example is, and it kind of relates, kind of doesn't, but the Ryder Cup in 2018, I'm playing with Justin, we're playing against Rory and Ian Poulter, and we have the lead, and Ian has a 12-footer on 15, and if he misses it, they're going to give me mine, and we're going we're gonna to win the match. And I walked up to Justin, I have about a, I don't, he probably has a 13-footer or something, I have like a 12-footer for birdie. And I walk up to Justin and I'm like, I really hope he makes this. And Justin looks at me. He's like, what? I was like, I want to make this. Cause I, I really want to make this on top of him. I want to make a, I don't want after all that. Like, cause we had, he and I, Justin and I had just made everything in that match. And sure enough, he made it. And then I made it and it was awesome. And my point, I guess, out of all that is I have that kind of competitiveness that, that I grew up with that want yeah. to be the one to make that putt. But at the same time, um, and this may not necessarily relate to that moment, but I want the other person to play their best. I just want to beat them yeah. at their best. And, you know, like a, like a Jason Day in 2015 at the at uh, Whistling Straits, you know, and I, a lot of people ask me about like I gave him a thumbs up on 17 when he hit a great lag putt that essentially sealed the tournament. It's like I've been in that position. I know how difficult it is to hit what looks like just a, you know, a normal putt just to control the emotions, control your hands, control everything. I fully appreciate watching the best at what they do, do what they do, even if it's golf. Like it's, that's fun for me. I'm a nerd for it. So I think the most important, when it comes down to advice to parents, it's if I didn't love the game the way I love it, then I wouldn't have, like my dad didn't push me. He encouraged, strongly encouraged me to set goals in whatever I was doing, write them down constantly, like to the point where it was like, at the dinner table and he's telling you not to, to use I or we, and you get so annoyed. Like that's what he, it was, I was so annoyed. I was like, I know what my goals are. I don't need to write them down. You're a teenage yeah. teenager. And it just, it was really, you know, I was never pushed, but I loved the sport so much. And I loved going and working on my own. And I, you know, I mean, it's just about finding what your kids love. Yeah. Well, and I think it speaks to the motivation that you have and that intrinsic motivation, that drive. And I'll close with this because we're, we're a week away from you getting, kicking off the season again. And it sounds to me and from this conversation and from what I know about you, that you've that inner drive and that motivation is what's really driving you and continuing to work really hard, despite having had a hall of fame career at 27 years old, that I know that there's more that you're ready to accomplish. So to close it out is everyone listening is going to be cheering hard for you to accomplish those goals. What is the motivation? What is the big thing that's on your mind? It may be the Ryder cup, like you mentioned earlier, but is there anything that's really the motivating factor right now? That's, that's driving you more than, than maybe something else. I've actually become very, very internal and and less outward in the last few years in a, in a really good way. Not, not, I've, I've kind of gotten very much off of social and just kind of limited or eliminated what can be seen that's talked about me from an outside perspective. So that's really good, especially in today's world. Like as much as you can be talked up when things are going well and it can at times help you, I think it's more beneficial when things are good or bad to do what got you there, which is essentially just, you know, do stuff on your own, work in the darkness, enjoy shooting low scores and winning golf tournaments because you like to shoot low scores and win golf tournaments. Yeah, I think that that's been very important. And for me, the right, so, so staying very inwardly focused towards very tangible goals. Ryder Cup is a tangible goal. I know I need to accomplish this, this, and this over the next two and a half months in order to set myself up in position to where I can control my own destiny into that. Whether that's, and, and really what it comes down to isn't winning twice in eight weeks. It isn't winning once by the end of the year. It's, consistently shooting under par scores to where when it comes the weekend, each weekend I'm in the hunt. And I know when I'm in the hunt, 
I start to gain that little bit of confidence back. Like I've got some scar tissue from some shots and rounds and whatever that will certainly present itself. And that's okay. And, and that's what I'm finding is in this break, I'm able to kind of say, this is okay. This is normal. This isn't what I've ever experienced before. So it's new. That's why it was so tough. It's been so tough for me to kind of deal with inwardly, but it's okay. It's normal. We just pushed through the scar tissue the same way I struggled in 2014. I was in position a lot of times to win golf tournaments and I couldn't win. I, I just didn't win, didn't win, didn't win. Chance of the Masters, chance of the players, chances at five or six other events that year where starting Sunday I had a chance to win the golf tournament and couldn't and even went to to work with a mental coach about winning golf tournaments. Uh, never didn't start working with one because the week that I was going to meet up, I had one in Australia and then one in Tigers events back-to-back weeks, started to kind of teach myself how to do it. Same kind of deal. It's like you just keep on getting yourself in that position. You just keep building that little bit of confidence, and I feel like I'll find myself right back where I'm really comfortable being in contention and and having a chance in those moments, finding fun in that pressure where my mind goes to, well, how am I going to knock this in versus, all right, I got to protect a little bit about against this side. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's just kind of as much work as you can do on the side. The number one most important thing for me has always been experience. And so as I can start to kind of not put too much early pressure on results and instead on continuing to build momentum, I can create a little bit of a groundswell and, and start to trend that I think would will ultimately speed up very quickly the process that I'm looking forward to on the mental side as I start to kind of give myself some grace on the physical side. Yeah. Beautiful, man. Well, we can't wait to get that started. I'm appreciative that you spent uh, probably more time than you thought you were going to come and spend. I looked down and, and more time had passed than I thought, but um, yeah, you say working. I tend to talk a lot. Well, no, so. I love it. I love it, man. I mean, and you say working in dark, you shed some light on a lot of the insights that I know a lot of people wonder about and we get questions about. So I'm really, really appreciative. I know that everyone listening will be too and cheering hard once we get back at it. So thanks very much for, for round two, man. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. We're also pretty active on Instagram, so follow at Altus Performance, and you can also follow on Twitter at Team Altus. If you haven't done so, please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review, share it with others, and be sure to stay tuned to future episodes of Earn Your Edge. Thanks for listening.